This morning's lesson is on the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Uh, they're hidden truths. Jesus, let's, let's open up our Bibles and start in Matthew chapter 13. The lesson this morning is inspired in large part by my friend Chris Reardon, who's out in Chicago, who's been talking to me about this subject for a long time and has devoted a lot of time to studying it out himself and helping me to see the importance of it. Also, David Berceau has been very helpful as well in, in terms of, of his teaching of helping to see the importance of the kingdom of God. As most of us appreciate, the main topic of Jesus' teaching was the kingdom of God, and his main way of conveying truths about the kingdom of God was in the form of parables. And there are some parables I've heard so many times that I'll tend to tune them out because I heard them so many times, and sometimes there were things that were hidden in the parables that I didn't understand in the beginning that I missed and, and discovered only later on. So this is one of those situations. In Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 10, I'm reading from the New King James. It says, The disciples came to and, and, and said to him, this is Jesus here, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So he spoke in parables to explain and reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, which some would get and others would not get. I want to move ahead to, he, he, he gives the parable of the sower here, and then he, he moves on and gives the parable of the wheat and the tares. And that's going to be the main scripture today, although we will look at several other passages in the New Testament. If you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to start reading in verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Let's jump down to verse 36. After Jesus tells another parable, it says, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, 
explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. They'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he gives the explanation here. There are about seven elements in the story. The sower of the seed is the son of man, which would be Jesus. The field is the world. The enemy is the devil. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of Satan. The harvest is the end of the age or the day of judgment. And those who are doing the gathering and separating out at the harvest time are the angels. At the time of judgment, the wheat and the tares are separated from one another. The righteous, the wheat being the righteous ones, that says they will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom, S-U-N, and the wicked will be cast into the furnace of fire, which of course would represent Gehenna or hell. That's right, Adam. That represents being cast into hell. So how I understood this parable for about 20 years was, starts off, the field is the world. So my, my understanding of the parable was, and this is how I understood it and how I taught it, was the field is the world, and in the world we have Christians, the good, the, you know, the good seed, the wheat that was sown by the Son of Man, and we have the unbelievers, the pagans, the non-Christians, the wicked. So you have, you have the two groups that are growing up side by side here in the world, the Christians and the non-Christians, and that at the time of judgment that the Christians and non-Christians will be sorted, apart, sorted out from each other and the Christians will be brought into the barn and the non-Christians will be cast into, those who are not Christians will be cast into the lake of fire. That's how I saw it. So the Christians are growing together in the world with the non-Christians scattered among us and, and we'll all be separated out in the end. One day, I don't know, five, ten years ago, I was leading a Bible discussion group, and uh, some here who were in the room may remember that, and we were talking about the kingdom of God in, in this parable here. And it was either Roy or Kim Walter, or maybe both of them, in the midst of the discussion, as I'm uh, explaining this parable as I understand it, they made an observation which completely threw me that I hadn't noticed before. And the, the comment that they made, it, they, they pointed out what says in verse 41, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom 
all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. And they said, well, the weeds are being gathered out of the kingdom. So they said, does this mean that the wheat and the tares are both in the kingdom of God? I never thought about that before. And that, I just, I didn't know how to respond at the time. And I, I wrestled with it and struggled with it and went back and looked at, the, looked at the passage again, trying to make sense out of this because I never looked at it that way before. Because if that's the case, if this is a story about the kingdom of God having good and bad in it, this is a totally different story, and there's a totally different lesson to learn from it. Other things all of a sudden start coming into focus. Now, as I'm trying to sort this out, I'm thinking, okay, I want to read this in context. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God through a series of similar parables. I went down to the parable of the dragnet, which is shortly after this. And now let's read this and think about this. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 47, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but through the bad way. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow, this, this certainly, he says, the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. He said, doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like good fish in a dragnet. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. Now, it's like the parable of the tares in that the separating out comes at the very end, at the time of harvest, after the, after the, the net has been pulled in, and the angels do the separating out. But he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that gathers some of every kind. Now, in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, wheat all looks the same. One, one blade of wheat looks the same as any other blade of wheat. It's a, basically, it's a commodity. Here, the picture is a little different. We learn something else about the kingdom because it pulls together some of every kind. And it's pretty obvious he's talking about there are going to be some of all kinds of people. He's, he's giving this parable to Jews. And he says, the kingdom is going to be like a net that cast, captures some of every kind of fish that's brought in. But just like Isaiah said, that the Gentiles would be coming into the kingdom of God, as Isaiah had prophesied. And as Jesus says in the Great Commission, to go make disciples of all nations. That this was the vision of the kingdom from the beginning. Some of every kind would be captured. However... The kingdom, being the dragnet, not all of the fish, the sum of every kind captured in it, would be good fish. There would be some bad fish in there also, who once again would be sorted out at the end of the age. Now, in the parable of the tares, in the beginning it says the field is the world. So that's what had 
thrown me in the beginning, but in the parable of the dragnet, it's very clear the, king, the kingdom of God is, is the dragnet. So the kingdom, if this is correct, then the kingdom would have some wicked people in it at this time who would be sorted out and cast into fire of judgment at the end, at the time of the harvest when the Son of Man returns. Then I started looking at the other parables to see if what they're teaching, does that line up with this also? The parable of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22. Let's take a look there. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. He sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go to the highways, and as many as you find invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw the man who did not have on the wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his servant, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him in the outer darkness, where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's very similar uh, to the the other parable, the first two parables that we read, in that many are brought into the wedding feast. They're good and bad. Now, in this story here, there are the invited guests who ignore or abuse the servants of the king. That obviously, and then he says that their city would be killed and they would be killed as well. This is obviously talking about the Jews in Jerusalem. Jerusalem being destroyed uh, just a few decades after the crucifixion of Jesus in A.D. 70. The the king says he will send his armies in to destroy that city. So the wedding banquet has a lot of other people in there and it says that there are some good and there are some bad who were invited and the wedding hall is filled with guests. So what is the wedding hall that people are invited into? This is a parable about the kingdom of God. However, when the king comes in, he finds someone among the guests who have been invited and who have come into the wedding hall, who is not prepared for the wedding. And it says that he is told, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him in the outer darkness with the weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's the same thing where there's a sorting process that takes place at the end. The kingdom of God has some good and bad in it. 
and, and there's, there's a sorting out that takes place when the king returns here. Matthew chapter 25. Starting in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took their oil in the vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. At midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all the virgins arose, trimmed their lamps, And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and for you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So, so the bridegroom is Jesus. The bridegroom is Jesus in the story, who is, they're, they're waiting for him to come. And it says that the kingdom of heaven, only five of the, five of the ten are prepared for the king when he comes. The other five are shut out because they weren't prepared when he came. It says the kingdom of heaven would be like ten virgins, not five. So once again, the kingdom has those who make it in the end and those who are separated out at the end, the time when the bridegroom returns who are disappointed, who are not prepared, who are not ready, who are shut out. And it's an admonition to us that we need to make sure that we are prepared for Jesus when he comes back. So, once again, not everyone. The kingdom is like the dragnet. It has good and bad fish in it. The kingdom is like the wedding banquet uh, where some would be cast out. And the kingdom here is like ten virgins. In this case, half of them are shut out when the bridegroom comes back. So, Jesus is telling a consistent message in all the parables explaining about the mysteries of the kingdom that this is what the kingdom would be like. Let's go back to the story of the wheat and the tares. The timeline in the story of the wheat and the tares is really important, and this is why I had misunderstood the parable for so long. I think of it as a a five-act play. Act one, the field exists. Act two, the farmer, the son of man, sows good seed into the field. Act three, the enemy sows tares among the good seed that had already been sown. The good seed that had been planted by the Son of Man. Act 4, servants come along and say, well, can't we just pull out the tares? And the answer is no, you can't. And then Act 5 is the harvest, the sorting, and the judgment where then the tares are pulled out and separated from the wheat, and the wheat is gathered in the barn. So, 
in this story. First, that we have the world. The world exists. Second, Jesus plants the church in the world. The good seed, the wheat is sown. So the church, the world exists first. The seed is planted in, in there. And then after the good seed has been planted by the Son of Man, after that, Satan plants the bad seed or the bad people within the church that's, that's been planted by the Son of Man. And then the fourth thing is Jesus says, don't pull out the tares. Why not? Because if you pull the tares out, he says, you'll pull some of the wheat out as well. What do we learn about the sower? He wants to save as much wheat as possible. He's more concerned about having a great harvest than having the perfect garden plot. That's his concern. And he knows that they can't. They, they don't know enough. This is a job that's been reserved for the angels. Reminds me also what John the Baptist said about Jesus in Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, this is one of the most disturbing portraits of Jesus in all of Scripture. Which is why people don't talk about it very much. This is after John the Baptist is asked if he's the Christ, if he's the Messiah. John answers, saying to them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to, to loose. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 17, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's the one in, the, in, in John's portrayal. He's standing on the threshing floor of the harvest, separating out the wheat from the chaff. It's similar to uh, the story of the wheat and the tares, where there's the separation process takes place at the end by, the, by his agents, the angels. So he's concerned about the harvest, not about having a perfect field. Satan is going to put some, some bad seed in there, and he's aware of that. He says, don't pull it out until the end. I've heard two objections to what I have just presented to you as an understanding of the parable of the wheat and the tares, which is consistent with the other parables. It's totally consistent with the story of the dragnet. It's consistent with Jesus' teachings about, about uh, the kingdom of God in, in, in the other, all the other parables, that uh, there would be a sorting process that would take place among those who are in the kingdom. Two objections that I've heard. One is that it's, it says in the parable, the wheat and the tares, that the field is the world. And they say, well, that, that's how I understood the beginning. The field is the world, and the world has the good and the bad in it. Well, the field is the world, and, and the word that's used there is uh, cosmos, which generally is translated world in the scriptures, but it can also mean framework or ornament as it's used in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Old Testament. 
uh, Origen points this out when he's discussing this story. David Berceau has a great lesson on the kingdom parables where he talks about the parable of the wheat and, and the tares, uh, where he just goes into this as well. However, as I mentioned before, the world existed first, and then the wheat is planted in the world by the Son of Man, the church, and then after the church comes, then the wicked people come after that. It's not the other way around. It's not that you have a world that's full of tares where wheat is planted among the tares. The tares are planted among the wheat that's planted by the Son of Man. Second objection I've heard is, well, if what you explain to me, Chuck, is correct in this story, then that means we can't pull wicked people out of the church. We're not supposed to do that. And don't the scriptures tell us very clearly that we're supposed to uproot people who are involved in sin in the church? Matthew chapter 18, Jesus himself talks about if your brother sins, show him his fault. If he doesn't repent, you bring other people in. And it says if they don't listen, you bring it before the church. And if they don't listen to the church, treat them as a pagan or tax collector. So basically you're putting them out of the church. So Jesus talks about, clearly about, but you put people out of the church you're involved in sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is all about this problem where somebody was involved in terrible sexual sin in the church in Corinth and Paul rebukes them and says, don't you realize that a little, ye- a little uh, yeast will leaven the whole, the whole lump, that this is going to contaminate the whole church? This person's involved in sexual sin, you need to put them out of the church. In Revelation chapter 2, the church in Thyatira is rebuked by Jesus And in one version it says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching people wicked things and leading them into sexual immorality. You're tolerating her. Or another another version will say you're allowing her to be in the church. So Jesus is very upset that they haven't dealt with this sin and, and kicked her out of the church. He said, I gave her time to repent. She didn't repent. <clears throat> but uh, he has a problem not only with her, but for the church of not dealing with her. So, say if this if this understanding of the past is correct, wouldn't that understand what the Bible teaches about addressing sin in the church? And and to be honest with you, this passage has been used over throughout the ages as an excuse for not disciplining people for sin in the church. Uh, I'm told that, uh, that, that's, that going back as far as Augustine, actually I've seen earlier examples than that, uh, the church that I grew up in, if and when I go back there on, on Sunday mornings, there are people who are going up to take communion who are living in sexual immorality who were out drunk the night before, who were involved in drugs, who've divorced their spouses and are, are uh, living with somebody else, and, and they're, they're filing down uh, the middle road to take communion on Sunday morning. And either those who are leading the church don't know anything about it, but I know in some cases they do know what's going on, but they're turning a blind eye to it. So most churches today will 
don't want to deal with the scriptures that talk about disciplining members of the church who were involved in sin. And they'll, they'll use a scripture like this as, as an excuse for that. So those are the objections I heard. One, one is the objection about the, the, the idea about the, the field is the world, so you have good and bad people in the world. And the other one is, well, if, if this is true, then that means you can't, you can't deal with sin in the church. Well, we have to embrace all of the teachings of Jesus. You can't accept one and throw the other one out. You have to accept both things are true and figure out how they can both be true at the same time. I want to read some quotations from early Christian writers who talked about the par- this passage, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, and also the dragnet. And this is from uh, Cyprian around the year 250 A.D. So he was living during a time, he was a bishop of the church in North Africa, living during a time of severe persecution. I believe that he ended up being martyred himself. And he's talking about the story of the wheat and the tares. And he has some rather strong things to say. So better, better him than me in terms of this parable. Cyprian says, all, this is from uh, Ananicene Fathers, Volume 5, page 327. For although there seem to be tares in the church, yet neither our faith nor charity ought to be hindered, so that because we see there are chairs in the church, we ourselves should withdraw from the church. It's tares. You said tares. Tares. It's tares. You're right. Thank you. We ought only to labor that we may be wheat, that when the wheat shall begin to be gathered into the Lord's barns, we may receive fruit for our labors and work. The apostle in his epistle says, In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Let us strive, dearest brethren, and labor as much as we possibly can, that we may be vessels of gold and silver. But to the Lord alone it is granted to break the vessels of earth, to whom also is given the rod of iron. The servant cannot be greater than his Lord, nor may anyone claim to himself what the Father has given to the Son alone, so as to think he can take the fan for winnowing and purging the threshing floor, or can separate by human judgment all the tares from the wheat. That is a profound obstinacy and a sacrilegious presumption which a depraved madness assumes to itself. Now, just to give you an appreciation for who Cyprian was, Cyprian was leader of a church in North Africa, and I had, before reading this quote, I had read some of his other writings. And Cyprian absolutely believed in a disciplined church. If people were involved in sexual immorality, in laziness, in idolatry, in heretical teaching, they were put out of the church, period. And after they repented, they were brought back into the church. So he was, in in fact, looking at the discussions that he was having, I would say he lived in and, and, and led a church that 
exhibited a greater degree of discipline, including taking the Lord's Supper, than any church I've ever been a part of. So he was absolutely rock solid on church discipline, on putting people out who are involved in sin. At the same time, at the same time, he also realized from the story of the wheat and the tares that anyone who thinks they can pull every single tear out of the church, he said, basically, what you're doing in effect is you're grabbing the winnowing fan out of Jesus' hand, pushing him aside and saying, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to separate the wheat from the chaff. He says, what a sacrilege to, to even think that you could do such a thing. You can't, by human understanding, do that. That we, can, we have to deal with serious sin in the church, but we can't delude ourselves to thinking that the church is going to be perfect before the day of judgment, when Jesus said clearly that it was not. I'm going to read another quote that I think is relevant from Origen, who's speaking about the parable of the dragnet, making a similar point. This is from uh, Ananicene Fathers, Volume 9, pages uh, 420 and 421. Origen is writing right around the same time, about 245 B.C. I'm sorry, 245 A.D. He says, On account, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered every kind. And apart from what has been said, the expression gathered from every kind may show forth the calling of the Gentiles from every race. And those who attend to the net which was cast into the sea are Jesus Christ, the master of the net, and the angels who came and ministered to him, who do not draw up the net from the sea nor carry it into the shore beyond the sea, namely to those things beyond this life, unless the net be full, that is, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come into it. But when it has come, they will draw it up from the things that are below, carry it to what is figuratively called the shore, where it will be the work of those who have drawn it up both to sit on the shore and there to settle themselves in order that they may place each of the good and the net in its own order according to what are here called vessels, but cast without, in a way, those who are in the opposite character which are called bad. By without is meant the furnace of fire as the Savior interpreted, saying, so it shall be at the consummation of the age. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the righteous and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. Only it must be observed that we are already taught by the parable of tares and the similitude set forth. The angels are being entrusted with the power to distinguish and separate evil from righteousness. For as it is said above, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that cause stumbling. And them that do iniquity shall be cast in the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. But here it is said, the angels come forth and sever the wicked from among the righteous and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. Continuing a little further. Now, since these things are written about the net and about those in the net, we say that he who desires that before the consummation of the age and before the coming of the angels to sever the wicked from among the righteous that there should be no evil persons of every kind in the net, seems not to have understood the scripture and to desire the impossible. 
Wherefore, let us not be surprised if before the severing of the wicked from among the righteous by the angels who were set forth for his purpose, we see our gatherings also filled with wicked persons. And would that those who would be cast into the furnace of fire may not be greater in number than the righteous. So, Origen uh, draws the same conclusion here, talking about the parable of the dragnet that Cyprian did about the story of the, the wheat and the tares. Origen says that basically those who would seek to purge all of the tares from the church or pick all of the wicked fish out of the net now before the consummation of the age, it says, first of all, you don't understand the scripture, parable of the dragnet, and second, you're desiring what's impossible. It can't be done. We don't have the capability to do that. Now, this is not justifying tolerating wickedness in the church. I was reading in the writings of Hippolytus around the same time, 225 B.C., he said there was a group in the church, there was a sect that was led by a man named Callistus. And that group allowed all kinds of sin in the church. And the justification that this sect had for allowing all kinds of sin in the church is they used the parable of the wheat and the tares. And they also used everybody's favorite scripture today in the religious world, do not judge. So they, they said, hey, wheat and the tares, we're going to have wicked people in here, and after all, there's a scripture that says, do not judge, so we're not going to judge anybody. And Hippolytus said, what's going on is in this particular sect, it's completely overrun with gross and rampant sexual immorality and other problems in the church, idolatry, everything else. So you can't take it there. You can't, you can't go that far. That's, that's not what he's saying. So the Bible says, on the one hand, that we need to address sin in the church. We need to put the wicked out of the church. Those who are involved in sin need to be called to repent. At the same time, it also teaches that we can't, it is impossible to create a perfect church. That there will be some wicked people in the church who escape notice, who will slip through the tracks, and who will only be pulled out by the angels and sorted out on the day of judgment at the end. So, what do we learn from this? What do we put, what, how, how do we internalize this message? Well, one mistaken idea that I think I had in the past was everybody in the church is saved, everybody outside the church is lost, whatever the church is, and that once I'm baptized and I'm in the church, as long as I stay in the church and don't get involved in any particular serious sin, I'm okay. But that's the, it's not once saved, always saved, but as long as I'm part of the church and I stay part of the church, then I'm good. And I think Jesus is teaching clearly in the parables that that's not the case. 
that the wise and the foolish virgins were all part of the of the kingdom of God, but the foolish ones weren't prepared. That the fish, the, the dragnet has good and bad fish in it. So if I am in the net right now, I need to strive to be the good fish. If I'm in the field, I need to strive to be the wheat. And if I see around me evidence of, of what looks like wickedness to me, if I'm a leader in the church, it's my responsibility to, to address obvious, clear-cut sin in the church, just like, just like Cyprian did in his own church, to put those scriptures into effect, but not to fool myself and to think I'm going to create a perfect church. So the burden of making sure that I am in the vine, that I'm walking with the Lord, and I will be wheat in the end, stays with me even after I am part of the kingdom of God. So we say yes to disciplining sin, but no to thinking that we have the wisdom to separate all the tares from outside the church. Um, Most churches go swing way to one extreme of the big tent idea of just like the Callistus' group, most churches out there are saying that we don't want to judge anybody, we're not going to discipline anybody, we're going to turn a blind eye to obvious sin, which the Bible clearly tells us we need to address. So the vast majority of churches are like that. We have to make sure that we don't overreact and go to the other extreme of trying to create a perfect, flawless church because we don't have the ability, and Jesus says that's not going to happen. Also, if you end up in a church at some point in time in your life where you see bad things happening, bad things going on, or bad people are there, you really shouldn't be surprised because Jesus talked about this. Peter talked about it. He said, just like there were false prophets in the past, there are going to be false teachers in the church. Expect it. Paul said in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders, some of your own number are going to rise up and lead people away after themselves. That's the way it's been in the church from the beginning. So the lesson is for, for, for us is to strive individually, even after we're baptized and we're part of the church. We cannot coast. We don't want to be like the foolish virgins. And uh, by, by the same token, we want to, don't want to delude ourselves that this church or any other one is a perfect church. Amen.